Good morning and welcome to the September 8, 2023 regular meeting of the San Francisco Ethics Commission. Today's meeting is being live cablecast on SFGov TV and streamlined online at sfgovtv.org slash ethics live. For public comments, members of the public may attend in person or may participate by phone or the WebEx platform as explained in our agenda document. Um, Clerk, can you please explain how the remote public comment will be handled today? Thank you, Madam Chair. Public comment will be available on each item on this agenda. Each member of the public will be allowed three minutes to speak. For those attending in person, opportunities to speak during the public comment period will be made available here in room 400 City Hall. For those attending remotely, public comment period can also be provided via phone call by calling 1-415-655-0001. Again, the phone number is 1-415-655-0001. Access code is 2663-095-8784. Again, access code is 2663-095-8784. Followed by the pound sign, then press pound again to join as an attendee. When your item of interest comes up, press star 3 to raise your hand to be added to the public comment line. Public comment is also available via the WebEx client application. Use the WebEx link on the agenda to connect and press the raised hand button to be added to the public comment line. For detailed instructions on how to interact with the telephone system or WebEx client, please refer to the public comment section of the, this agenda document for this meeting. Public comment may also be submitted in writing and will be shared with the commission after this meeting has concluded and will be included as part of the official meeting file. Written comments should be sent to ethics.commission at sfgov.org. Once again, written comments should be sent to ethics.commission at sfgov.org. Members of the public who attend commission meetings, including remote attendance, are also expected to behave responsibly and respectfully. During public comment, please address your comments to the commission as a whole and not to individual members. Persons who engage in name calling, shouting, interruptions, or other distractive behaviors may be excluded from participation. The following behaviors or activities are strictly prohibited during remote participation. Applause or vocal expression of support or opposition. Signs regardless of content or message. Profanity. Threats of physical aggression. The prohibition on signs does not apply to clothing, which includes signage pinned to clothing, messages displayed on clothing, pins, hats, or buttons. This provision supplements rules and policies adopted by City Hall, the Sheriff's Office, or the Board of Supervisors related to decorum, prohibited conduct or activities, noise, etc., and is not meant to be exhaustive. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you. I now call the meeting to order. Uh, roll call, please. Commissioners, please verbally indicate your presence after your name is called. Commissioner Flores Fang. She's excused. She's excused. Excused absence. Vice Chair Finlove. Here. Chair Lee. Present. Commissioner Salahi. Present. Chair Lee, with three members present and accounted for, you have a quorum. Thank you. Um, let's go to agenda item number two, which is general public comment. Anyone in the room wish to speak? Good morning, Etix. You see, it's funny, uh, we are, I keep this today a bit. Uh, we have to pay attention. So you see, even the clock says it's late. 
it's a bit late. To, we have to pay attention. Uh, it is impossible to fight against the eternal rules of existence, which states that for any human being, the reason for being is happiness. And you can't achieve this happiness without exclusively working within yourself, it's a mindset, towards the eternal emotional aspirations towards beauty. If you don't do that, you can't be happy. End of the story. It means that you work indirectly or not towards ugliness and you finish your life unhappy, mostly ugly, and the eternal rules of existence tells you you are not back, ever. Even if you don't believe in reincarnation, it's not the problem. The universe works by cycle of reproduction. That's all life is about, existence. So we have to pay attention because it's late. Ethics rely on this understanding. Otherwise, you don't have any basis. What ethics? Everybody decides ethics? No, no. If you don't rely on this idea that your reason for being is happiness according to these rules, you are done. So you are free not to want to be happy, but humanity doesn't need you because existence says it doesn't need you anymore. Have a nice day. It's not directly for you. It's for, I know. <laughs> but I can be more specific because I work for everybody's happiness. You have to understand that. Are we clear? Thank you. Any other speakers? If not, let's go to the queue. Madam Chair, we have two callers in the queue. Please stand by for the first caller. Welcome, caller. Your three minutes begins now. Commissioners, uh, my name is Francisco de Costa. At the last Ethics Commission, I was there in person. I want to bring to your attention that the role of the Ethics Commission is very important to the citizens of San Francisco. And I want to bring to your attention that recently an individual who was hoodwinking everybody in broad daylight and it took 15 years, 15 years to bring this person to book. And the Ethics Commission was aware of this person dealing with community benefits and failed us. And the Ethics Commission was aware of another person that worked with him and failed us. And you have one commissioner who worked for the Fair Political Practices Commission, who is aware of the situation. We want adjudication based on empirical data that I provided to the controller 
not this city attorney, but the past city attorney sat on the information and prepared the way for him to become the general manager of the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. The New York Ethics Commission had to adjudicate this case because initially you failed to do due justice. No fair play, no sound adjudication, but looking the other way. Thank you very much. Next caller, please. Okay, please stand by while we get the second caller going. Welcome, caller. Your three minutes begins now. Can you hear me now? Yes. Great. It's uh, David Pilpel. Good morning. Um, so I, I just had one uh, brief comment. I've been working through some uh, complicated issues with uh, staff uh, recently. They're not uh, relevant for uh, today's agenda, but I just wanted to uh, mention that my interactions with uh, staff have been entirely professional. They've been uh, quite uh, helpful, and we're in a big problem-solving mode. Um, some of the results may come to you uh, at some point, uh, but I just wanted to say that I really appreciate the uh, professional work of your um, small but highly competent staff. That's all for me for now. Thanks very much. Thank you. Madam Chair, we, have no, we don't have any further callers in the queue. Okay. Public comment is closed for agenda item number two. Let's go to consent calendar. Uh, there will be no separate discussions on the consent calendar item unless a request is made by a commission member or a member of the public. Uh, in attendance, in which event the matter shall be removed from the consent calendar and considered as a separate item. Colleagues, any? No. Anyone in the, any member of the audience? No, and reflected. So let's open up for public comment on consent calendar, please. Madam Chair, we have no callers in the queue. Okay, let's take a roll, please. Oh, we need to have a motion. I move to uh, adopt the consent calendar. Second. Okay. Roll call, please. Okay. On the motion to adopt the consent calendar, Vice Chair Finland. Aye. Chair Lee. Aye. Commissioner Salahi. Aye. Madam Chair, with three votes in the affirmative and zero votes opposed, the motion is approved unanimously. Okay. Let's go to agenda item number five which is an update and discussion regarding the march 2024 ethics commission ballot measure focused on gift training and other city ethics laws um let's have our acting policy and legislative affairs manager mr michael kenning to give us an overview and answer any questions we may have uh, thank you, Chair Lee, Commissioners. Uh, just to briefly recap what was in the, uh, the staff memo. Um, since the last meeting, uh, staff have delivered the Commission's approved ballot measure to the Department of Elections and worked with the Chair to issue a press release regarding the measure submission. Uh, staff have also followed up with the Mayor's Office and the Department of Public Health to notify them of the amendments that were made during the last meeting. 
staff is currently working on developing additional materials for the public that will provide factual information about the measure. Um, staff also met yesterday with the Department of Elections to get more information about how the Commission can submit ballot arguments, um, which the Commission has done uh, with previous measures, and uh, drafts of those will come before the Commission uh, in the coming months. Uh, we've also been in the process of developing initial draft regulations uh, related to Section 3.218 of the measure um, for the Commission to consider in the future. Uh, and lastly, the memo has attached to it the City Attorney's uh, 2022 Memo on Political Activities, uh, which was included as a reminder for commissioners and staff and the public um, regarding um, uh, what's allowed and prohibited in relation to the measure. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to answer any questions uh, the Commission has. And uh, uh, Deputy Attorney Brad Rossi is also available for any questions on the Political Activities Memo. Thank you. The packet was really helpful. Seeing the old um, ballot measure arguments was really helpful to see how that works. Um, I'm just curious whether anyone's reached out from the mayor's office or anywhere else about substantive proposed regulatory, anything they want to address in the proposed ballot, in the ballot measure language. Uh, nothing specific. We updated the mayor's office um, in relation to the financial interest rule that was removed, um, and I think conversations around that are moved to what would be an item uh, six uh, in relation to the legislation proposed by Supervisor Safai. So um, we haven't heard anything specific related to the measure since then. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, open up public comment. No one in the room. Let's go to the queue, please. Madam Chair, we have one caller in the queue. Please stand by. Welcome, caller. Your three minutes begins now. So, Commissioners, the public, they don't have the latest amendments that have been made. But we are trying to work with the election department to put some language, and the gentleman who gave his short presentation seems to think that that's the way to do it. Commissioners, when it comes to behalf donations, we witnessed at the Board of Supervisors when the mayor's office came with a proposition to get a waiver on BLS donations linked to APAC, a conference that's going to be held in November. What is happening here is that when it comes to gifts, training, and other city ethics laws, we do not have standards. We need the language on standards. We need the language on how this department get their orientation, and how the heads of departments are evaluated. We need to focus on standards. 
the generalities of stating that we said this and they agreed to it, and the election department is going to put it on the ballot measure, we have no clue if they meet standards. And if you cannot do that as the ethics commission, then we have to revisit this type of talk where some generalities and the language is very general, but it has no standards. Thank you very much. Thank you. Madam Chair, we have no further callers in the queue. Any other callers who wish to address this item? None. Okay, public comment is closed. I do have a um, question for our assistant uh, city attorney. Uh, what happens if we are asked as individuals, but people know that we serve on this commission, to do get out the vote activities, not specifically on this specific ballot, but just urge members of the public to vote. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't understand your question. Could you repeat it, please? If you're asked about- I understand we cannot comment on, on any specific ballot measures, but what happens if we are called upon to urge members of the public to to vote, to do the right. civic duties next year, would that be allowable without touching anything on this ballot? Just say, hey, please go out to vote, you know, um, you know. You're urged duty. to vote generally in the election, but yeah. not really with respect to this measure. No, just for the um, March election. I think that's probably okay for you to do. You, there are specific rules that apply under the charter to the commission with respect to your political activities, and generally you're really not supposed to be involved in elections endorsing candidates or measures regardless of what they are, including your own measure. Um, I think likely just as a statement we urge everyone to vote is probably okay. Because normally we don't use our titles, but members of the, the press usually would identify us, whether it's member of the Ethics Commission, you know, even though we don't use it ourselves. And I've caught myself, you know, being on the receiving end. But all we have to do is just say all members of San Francisco uh, um, uh, citizens, please go vote in March. In the March as election. long as you're not respect, not you're not specifically referencing any measure or candidate. No. I think that's probably fine. But the newspaper would say, you know, commissioners Salahi, member of the Ethics Commission, urge members of the public to vote in the March 2024 election. Right. I mean, if the article is about this measure, you might want to decline to comment. I think that probably would be the better course of action because by making any comment with respect to this measure, it's going to be perceived as you endorsing, urging people to vote affirmatively for this measure, which would be an issue under your SIA and under the charter rules. Does that make sense? Thank well, you. it no longer applies to me, but for my colleagues next year, it would be a potential issue. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm done. I'm done by next March, so I could speak my, my free will, right? Okay. I, I'm not. Do you have another question? I couldn't understand what you said. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I'm just saying that for the for this item, it would impact my colleagues more. Okay. She was Thank indicating you. she will no longer be, a, I think, a commissioner at that yeah. time. 
Oh, right, when the ballot, when the measure. Okay, so, yeah. <laughs> right. You won't be on the commission anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so no action is required for this item. Let's go to agenda item number six, which discussion of legislative proposal from the Board of Supervisors prohibiting city officials from receiving compensation from departmental contractors. Um, again, let's have Mr. Michael Canning to give us a review and answer any uh, thank you, Chair Lee. Commissioners, uh, this legislation was introduced by Supervisor Safai, uh, which would prohibit officers and employees from receiving compensation from entities that contract with their departments. Uh, this legislation is intended to address both real and perceived conflicts that can arise when a city official uh, is employed by or receiving compensation from an entity that's contracting with their department. Uh, some departments already have similar rules to this in their SIAs, um, others do not. Um, there was a similar rule that was included in a uh, previous draft of the commission's ballot measure uh, that was removed during last month's meeting. Uh, also during last month's meeting, the commission discussed potentially narrowing this rule so it applies only to Form 700 filers. Um, the legislation is currently um, being discussed as part of a meet and confer process with city bargaining units. Uh, there's been one meeting on that thus far um, and additional uh, uh, if meetings will likely occur um, and there is a um, uh, uh, information being exchanged as part of that, uh, that meet and confer, um, which will need to be finalized before uh, the city can implement uh, this legislation if desired. Um, the item was agendized today for the commission to be able to ask questions, identify priorities, and discuss the legislation with representatives from Supervisor Safai's office. Um, I believe Bill Barnes is uh, here from the supervisor's office uh, and is prepared to speak to the commission and uh, take questions as well. Uh, th thank you, Michael. Bill Barnes with Supervisor Safai's office. I um, want to thank the Ethics Commission for all of its hard work on the measure that will appear on the March ballot. Uh, this was one part of that potential measure focused on individual sort of city employees who are then being compensated by contractors uh, of their departments. Um, in general, we believe that outside employment should be allowed for city employees. Some people, uh, because they need to or because of professional reasons, um, seek outside employment. For example, a nurse at San Francisco General might also be a nurse at UCSF or a doctor uh, might go to a different uh, facility so that we think that's okay but what is not okay uh, is when people who are making decisions are then being compensated in addition to their city salary by a contractor or their department as michael noted many departments already prohibit this practice government code section 1090 prohibits this practice where an individual is part of making the rfp they then can't profit from it later that's a state law uh, but there's not a clear standard in the code. So we drafted something that we thought was effective. It was narrower than what was in the proposed measure. And let me just talk about those differences quickly and then I'll take any questions. Um, we exempt uh, any local, state, or federal entity that has a contract from this prohibition. So for example, UCSF or the Veterans Administration would be exempted um, and employees would be able to uh, generate income there if uh, if the measure were to pass. Um, and we also exempt spouses or registered domestic partners um, from the requirement. So um, city officials have to, on their Form 700s, list the employment um, and sources of income of their spouse or registered domestic partner. 
um, if the spouse or registered domestic partner worked at a contractor, uh, that would continue to be allowed. Um, I would just say a couple things. The meet and confer process has been great. Um, we've heard from labor that uh, they are generally supportive but don't want to harm frontline workers who are not making any sort of governmental decisions but may, may have another uh, position. So we're hopeful that we'll be able to get to agreement with them as we work through the process. Um, and we suspended the process because we wanted to be deferential to this commission. Had the measure gone on the ballot with the provisions that were in it, um, then that, those would have superseded our ordinance. So we sort of suspended our work while we waited to see what happened. Um, just two examples. Uh, one, well, actually, one example I'll just share. I think it's in the staff report. Uh, there was an employee at DPH who was earning outside income from a contractor, widely reported. In the media, we held a hearing of the Ethics Commission staff, came and did a great job. DHR came in, as you all know, outside employment is required to be reported to the city. Prior to beginning outside employment, it has to be approved by the department as well as by DHR. We discovered at DPH there were hundreds of employees who had never notified DPH or DHR of their outside employment. So we're already making progress under the existing rules. This ordinance would just clarify and standardize uh, this prohibition. Um, I will stop there and take any questions. I have a couple. Go ahead. I always have questions, but yeah. Commissioner Slaughter, yeah. go ahead. Um, <clears throat> thank you for the presentation. That was very helpful. Um, I do have a couple of questions just to clarify. I think you mentioned that the this measure is intended to only, as far as the outside compensation is concerned, is only intended to apply to employees who might have a decision-making role with respect to the outside employer. Is that right? Uh, the current draft that's before you does not include that language. Uh, that is on the table in the meet and confer process, and we are amenable to making those amendments after we complete that process. It is our intention to have it apply to those individuals who are decision-making. Um, Form 700 filers would be an example of that. There may be other individuals who don't file Form 700s but who are making decisions, maybe giving input on an RFP, for example. So we need to be thoughtful about what the language is, but that's our goal. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that was my question because it seemed like the language here is broader than, than that. Um, but the second question I had is just echoing a question that Commissioner Finlove had at the last commission meeting about the commission's own ballot measure, which is just trying to provide us with a more concrete understanding of what kinds of employees are going to be affected by this. Um, maybe that's not as much of an issue if, if the language is narrowed in the way that you've, you've represented today, but if it is a broader one, um, I think it would be helpful to know who it will actually impact so we can assess that in, in reviewing. So, um, so that is a question that was asked to meet and confer. DHR is pulling together of those employees who've been approved for outside employment, and so we'll have a list of their uh, employers as well as their classifications before we move forward. So we'll know here are the type of employees in the aggregate, here are the types of outside entities that they're um, drawing income from. And of that, there'll be a subset that are departmental contractors, right? Some people will be drawing outside employment from just other folks, and that's okay because they have nothing to do with local government. So DHR is parsing that data now. We'll share it with the labor unions, and then we'll share it with you all. The other source of that data is Form 700s. So to the extent the individuals file a Form 700 and they list outside income, um, that's a public form, as you all know. So we would be able to cross-reference uh, those individuals who have a listed source of income that's a contractor. That would be a data pro project we could work out as well. So we will make certain to have that information before we bring it to the board. And we have to bring this back to you all for approval on a four-fifths basis uh, before the board could consider out a two-thirds basis. And so we'll make sure to have that information before we return. Thank you. Um, thank you for being here. I think this is um, 
great kind of common sense, good government, good government legislation. But I'm about the the details. Um, I suspect I'm glad you're doing that form 700 and um, looking at what where the outside employment is, because I suspect for some of the nurses or doctors, the outside employer may not be a government agency, maybe a private medical provider contractor type entity, and they would not be, as I understand it, exempt under the current legislation. So there may be a way to address that so that right you're not kind of treating similarly situated folks differently just based on who the outside employer is. Um, but I guess that data kind of call you're doing will help you see where those folks are in fact working. Um, and then kind of related to that, um, this hypothetical I presented, I think at our last commission meeting where um, by exempting government outside employment, maybe that also creates too big of an exemption in some situations where you have the head of a city agency that's also high up in a government agency that to me potentially presents the same conflict that it would if they were at an outside private employer. Um, staff pointed out that that might violate other parts of the statement of incompatible activities, maybe you know the time burden or things like that. That said, though, I think if you're going to address conflicts, that may be worth looking at um, because right now, as written, it's a pretty broad. It's both maybe too narrow and too broad the exemption, and I think it's going to be really hard to find that perfect place. Um, and then the last. Thing. So those are more kind of suggestions for you to, to keep in mind going forward. Um, the current exemption applies to, uh, sorry, sorry, the current language exempts spouse's income. Um, but that income would still be on the Form 700, right? So it'd be disclosed so that folks can assess this person's spouse works for contractor and they're making these decisions. Is there a conflict? Is that right? Um, that is correct. Um, but the spouse or domestic partner wouldn't be prohibited from having that employment. It would potentially limit the city employee and their decision-making capacity based on the conflicts, but it wouldn't be prohibited in that instance. Um, I would just respond to your comments by saying thank you. I appreciate the feedback. Uh, we're hopeful that we can use the BECAFER process and legislative process to get this right. Um, and the other thing that we're looking at, which I would just share uh, briefly, uh, is that we have um, some data and we've seen there was a recent uh, case brought by the DA um, around uh, the community challenge grant program uh, where um, someone was receiving uh, payments allegedly there. So we, we have other data from other departments. DPH has been the primary focus of attention, but we haven't done a citywide sweep of all departments to get the information on how this would work. And so that is going to be part of the meet you confer. And we'll be able to share with you not just in the DPH context, but in, in the context of every other department as well, uh, those who've reported their income. Yeah, I think it'd be fascinating just public service to put out, not specifically who has what job, but like an anonymized data set of where city folks have outside, outside employment. Um, as you move forward, I think it'd be helpful to us, well, I guess it's a question about the process. Before the board, how does it work? Safai makes this proposed legislation, then it comes to us, and then it goes to the board? Um, so the process is we introduced this ordinance, uh, and it was referred to the Ethics Commission, which has to act on it by a four-fifths vote in order for it to move forward to the Board of Supervisors. If the Commission recommends it on a four-fifths vote, then the Board could consider it and approve it on a two-thirds basis. That process can only begin uh, after we satisfy our media for obligations. And once we have that initial uh, assessment, we're basically doing an up or down vote. We're not, well, can we make suggestions or then it creates like a ping-ponging effect where it goes back and forth between us and the Board? 
Um, we would welcome suggestions uh, from the commission. I would defer to the deputy city attorney and, and others on how that would impact being conferred to the extent that we uh, have suggestions that weren't discussed with bargaining units that we accept. We might have to go back, but um, that would be so that would be a step we're open to. Uh, if there are recommended amendments uh, from the commission level, we'd be happy to explore that. Yeah, I guess just at that point, I'd urge you to share your work with staff kind of in advance so that they can have that. And it sounds like you already are working with them. Yeah, and staff will be part of the meet and confer process as well. So if the commission has priorities that you want kind of brought into the meet and confer, you can communicate those through staff and hopefully those would be reflected in what's agreed on through the meet and confer. Got it. Okay, great. Yeah, I personally would love to see any language that you come up with that addresses those kind of waivers and exemptions that we've talked about. Um, but. Thank you to the office for moving this forward. I think it's important legislation. Uh, thank you all. Um, we look forward to working. Uh, and also, I, I should mention, uh, we've also been working with the Human Services uh, Network and others, not just in the labor community, but in the nonprofit world and other places to make sure that any concerns they have are also incorporated. So by the time we come back to you, hopefully, most stakeholders will have had their concerns evaluated and addressed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, let's open up for public comment. Okay, Madam Chair, we have two callers in the queue. Please stand by. First caller, welcome caller. Your three minutes begins now. Great. Can you hear me now? Yes. Great. Uh, David Pilpel, actually, <laughs> sorry, nothing substantive on this. I appreciate the dialogue back and forth. I just wanted to... Uh, uh, point out a technical uh, issue if uh, staff can work with SFGov TV so far twice during this meeting uh, the phone line has uh, gone dead and I had to uh, call back in it's not a problem online on WebEx but it has been a problem on the phone and I checked it it's not the phone on my end so uh, there may be some glitch in the phone system uh, with WebEx uh, but I appreciate the discussion on this item and thank you to Bill Barnes and uh, Supervisor Safai uh, for their work on this. That's all. Thank you. All right, Madam Chair, we're going to go to the second caller in the queue. Please stand by. Welcome, caller. Your three minutes begins now. So, Commissioners, if you do a needs assessment of what happened at the city administrator's office, with this woman uh, doling out community benefits, uh, I think uh, y'all do not have all the information because this case is just being adjudicated. So there are many loopholes right now how certain people receive compensation, not only with the Department of Health, but some other departments. That is all I'll say. You cannot address this situation without delving more as to how such things could go on at the city administrator's office for so long and at the same time look into the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission that right now in its contracts is still
still encouraging the contractor to do outreach. Look into it. There's money set aside linked to the contractor to do outreach, which if the contractor doesn't do the outreach, somebody else can do it. What type of Mickey Mouse is this? Look into it. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, Madam Chair, there's no further callers in the queue. Okay, public comment is closed. Uh, since there is no action required for this item, let us go. Uh, thank you, Mr. Barnes, for your uh, uh, presentation, and we hope to see you again next month. Thank you. Let's go to the next agenda item, which is campaign finance information presentation. I call on our enforcement division's new investigative analyst, Mr. DeMarco, the presentation. Welcome. Uh, we have a presentation, just a PowerPoint slide here, so uh, great. Uh, thank you, Chair Lee, Commissioners. My, my name is Zach D'Amico. I'm a senior investigator with the Enforcement Division. Uh, we have a presentation here. Basically, over the last several years, the division has taken on, we think, more wide-ranging campaign finance cases to better achieve some of the policy goals underlying those laws, including public access to information and avoidance of undue influence. We've also started to prioritize proactive investigations in an attempt to identify violations without the receipt of a complaint from a member of the public. Uh, next year, 2024, the city will hold elections for 19 city elective positions. That will be alongside a presidential election and presumably proposed ballot measures. Uh, with such a large volume of campaign finance activity, we hope to start preparing the, the commission and the public through what will be hopefully around a 15-minute presentation today, highlighting just a few major areas of campaign finance law. Obviously, 15 minutes is not enough to dive into the entire code. Today will just be an overview of a few select laws focused on conduct that we're hoping to prioritize over the coming years. Uh, we also welcome commission feedback on those areas of priority and where we should direct our attention over the coming, oh, fifth, I guess, now. 13 to 14 months until the election. So just briefly, uh, the presentation will just start with a quick reminder of some of the building blocks of campaign finance law. A lot of this will be things that you're very familiar with, but want to sort of start from the most basic and build up. Then I'll move on, I'll discuss committee obligations. That'll include <clears throat> uh, both when the obligation to form a committee arises and when it does arise and the committee exists, the various disclosure requirements imposed by law Within these sections, I've selected one particular area of law to focus on through a case study. And then finally, we'll briefly discuss some of the restrictions placed on committee fundraising through contribution limits and other prohibitions. And again, we'll focus on two areas of law through a case study, uh, both from the cases will be both from uh, our jurisdiction and other jurisdictions. So as I'm sure you're all aware, there are two major laws that govern campaign finance in San Francisco elections. The San Francisco Campaign and Governmental Conduct Code, Article 1, 
and at the state level, the Political Reform Act. Both of these have implementing regulations, and both the Ethics Commission locally and the FPPC at the state level have issued interpreted, interpretive guidance over the years. Uh, you'll see both of these laws cited in pretty much every one of our stipulations or cases that are brought before you. Uh, in particular, the one piece of code that's worth pointing to for everyone is uh, in Campaign and Governmental Conduct Code Section 1.106 essentially incorporates the state law, Political Reform Act, into uh, local law as it applies to local city elections. So at times when we're citing state law, it's only as it applies to our elections. In terms of foundational terms, again, most of these will be familiar to everyone, and but though they do each have sort of their own quirks. Uh, for example, candidates will almost always be defined by their presence on the ballot, and that's written into law, but the law also defines candidates as uh, me. Uh, basically anyone who is making expenditures or accepting contributions in order to bring about their own election, even if they're not on the ballot yet, and even if they don't know which office they're running for yet, they're still considered a candidate under the law. Committee, on the other hand, is just any single person or group of persons who's receiving contributions or making expenditures exceeding a certain threshold. I'll go into more detail on that briefly on the next slide, but I think you can already see even just from the definition of candidates and committees that contributions and expenditures are two of the core terms uh, in making our campaign finance laws work. And so just briefly, a contribution is any payment, forgiveness of a loan, or enforceable promise of payment that's received by a candidate or a committee if it's for political purposes. Whereas an expenditure, similarly, is just any payment, forgiveness of a loan, or enforceable promise of a payment not received by a candidate or committee uh, and it, if it's for political purposes, again. Uh, and finally, an expenditure is considered to be an independent expenditure, referred to as an IE, if it's made in connection with a communication advocating for or against a candidate, but it's not made at the behest of or to that candidate, so it's truly independent, which will, most of these terms will just be brought up through this presentation, so I felt it was important to briefly establish uh, the, the formal definitions of them. So first, uh, I want to quickly just discuss when exactly does a person or group of persons accepting or spending money for political purposes become a committee? There are three main ways that this can happen. The first is if they are receiving contributions of at least $2,000 in one year, that's considered a recipient committee. Second, if they're making independent expenditures of at least $1,000 in a calendar year, that's an IE committee. Third, if they're making contributions to or at the behest of other candidates or committees of at least 10,000 in one year, and that's considered a major donor committee. Now, upon forming, each committee also has a set of requirements considered to be part of their official organization, things like they have to file a statement of organization, they have to have a, a, an official treasurer, someone, the treasurer and the, the candidate has to take training, they have to pay fees, things like that. And as I'll get to later, the committees are then subject to obligations for reporting their activity, which essentially govern what campaigns have to report, when they report them, and where they report them. We're talking about these thresholds just for city measures and candidates, right? Yeah. So a committee taking a billion dollars for congressmen from San Francisco might be a state committee, but not anything that would relate to what we're dealing with, right? Can you repeat the question? So a congressional candidate even yeah. in San Francisco would not flag for city purposes. Right, these. right, if they're a federal candidate. And um, 
So there, I just want to briefly get at some of the, you know, the basic purpose of these formation requirements is basically as soon as any person or group of persons is raising or spending money for political purposes, they are working to influence an election. And so they, the law now forces them to disclose what they're doing to influence that election, which gives the public, the press, regulators insight into those activities to attempt to influence the election. I want to look as an example at multi-purpose organizations, which under the law are a range of uh, organizations from trade associations to nonprofits, civic, religious, educational institutions, organizations that have varying degrees of transparency into their finances, usually less than is required of political committees, but their work often includes and overlaps with political activity. So when, for example, does a nonprofit have to register as a political committee and disclose their finances as such. As an example, I just want to look at when a nonprofit would have to form as a recipient committee under the law. First, they have to have met the threshold that I mentioned on the last slide. They have to have received contributions, meaning donations meant for a political purpose, of at least $2,000. But then they have to meet one of an additional criteria, either they must have solicited the donation specifically for making contributions or expenditures, or there has to have been a condition, agreement, or understanding between the donor and the nonprofit that that money would be used for contributions or expenditures. In other words, basically there has to have been an indication or a meeting of the minds between the person giving the money and the nonprofit receiving the money that this would be used for political purposes. The law essentially ensures that donors can't hide their political activity by funneling their money through nonprofits engaged in political activity, but it also protects nonprofits who are engaged in very little incidental political activity that is not at all the core of what they're doing. Um, take, for example, the Bicycle Coalition case. This is the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition. Recently, this commission approved a stipulation. In that case, the coalition fundraised directly for their efforts on ballot measures that were designed to keep a stretch of JFK Drive car free. And in that case, again, the coalition specifically referenced this ballot measure in emails sent out to their membership soliciting money to be used to influence the ballot measure, and then proceeded to spend that money on communications and activities designed to influence the ballot measure. That was an expenditure. So members or supporters who donated in response to that email had a reasonable expectation that their money would be used for political purposes. And therefore, under the, under the law, they have the right to see how that money was used through reporting under our campaign finance laws, as did the rest of the public. So the nonprofit was required to form a committee and report that activity. Moving on. Just briefly, we'll cover the basics of the obligations that then apply once you have formed a committee. Primarily, these come in the form of reporting. You have semi-annual statements that committees are required to file twice per year. This documents contributions received and made, expenditures made, payments, loans, essentially financial balancing statement. Um, as the elections draw nearer, committees have to file what are called pre-election statements. These contain the same information. They're just done on a more regular basis to keep the public more up to date with what committees are doing as the elections draw closer. Uh, and finally, again, as I'm sure you're aware, there are late contribution and late expenditure reports uh, that must be filed within 24 hours once you get close to the election if the expenditure or contribution is over $1,000. Again, the purpose behind these laws is fairly simple. It's to give the public and the press an understanding of who's, who is spending to influence elections and how they're spending. 
uh, and it's to allow regulators to ensure that donors, candidates, committees are following the law. Committees are also subject to certain disclaimer requirements. I'm not gonna get into those today. I think that's a separate rabbit hole we can go down uh, just in the interest of time, but I just wanna mention that. On this to uh, topic, I just wanna highlight uh, an area of the law that's focused on where a committee must file its statements. I mentioned a lot of the disclosure requirements focus on what, when, and where. For general purpose committees, which are committees that make contributions or expenditures to support or oppose multiple candidates, essentially the law states that a committee qualifies under city jurisdiction, under our jurisdiction, if it makes more than 70% of its contributions or expenditures focused on elections in one city, in San Francisco, then they would fall under the Ethics Commission's jurisdiction. If less than 70% is dedicated to one particular city, if it's spread across jurisdictions, they would be under the state's jurisdiction. Uh, every committee is responsible for determining its own status, verifying it quarterly, and changing its jurisdiction if its activity changes. There are, just briefly, there are two tests that a committee can use to determine whether they reach the 70% threshold. The 24-month test looks at the prior two years of activity. The current period test only looks at activity going back to January 1st of the most recent odd-numbered year. Uh, that may seem arbitrary at first glance. You know, if you're a committee choosing that test today, you're only reporting your activity from January through September of this year. The reason for it is that oftentimes after an election cycle, committees will pivot to a new jurisdiction because they only cared about, you know, a ballot measure that was in San Francisco in 2022, and now they're done in San Francisco, they're moving elsewhere. So if their activity has changed, they shouldn't have to look all the way back two years to activity that's not really relevant for what they're doing right now. And it's up to them to determine which test is most most accurately reflects their activity. So again, this commission recently voted to approve a stipulated settlement in a case uh, dealing with Progress San Francisco, a general purpose committee that had switched back and forth between city and state jurisdiction five times over a two year period in which 98% of their activity was focused on San Francisco city elections. And I think this emphasizes the fact that for most people, the where of jurisdiction may seem to be sort of the least contentious or least complicated requirements surrounding a committee's filing obligations, but I do think this case illustrates its importance. As a member of a pub the public, if I want to get a full picture of um, a well-funded committee's activity and attempts to influence San Francisco elections, I should be able to find all that information in one place. I know to go to the Ethics Commission's website or and look at in where to find disclosures, but if I find six late contribution reports covering you know, 50,000 in expenditures, but the committee has another 300,000 in expenditures that they've filed elsewhere, but that are influencing city elections, I think I have the full picture and I don't. And I don't even know what I don't know. I don't know to go check other jurisdictions and piece it all together. Uh, you know, if regulators, if journalists are using the Ethics Commission's data sets and their, you know, our vis data visualization tools, I'm not getting the full picture of who is spending to influence elections if they're sort of sophisticated actors or trying to game the system and file in different places. So um, that's some of the importance of kind of the ins and outs of the, the where to file part of the law. Uh, moving on to discussion around some of the limits and prohibitions that apply to who can contribute to candidates and candidate committees and how much they can contribute. These are more of the high-profile laws that I think a lot more people are aware of. So 
by way of brief summary, you have things like the $500 contribution limit to candidate committees from any one person. You have there is a prohibition on contributions in exchange for any official action, vote, use of influence, or lack thereof. There is a prohibition on contributions to candidate committees from any corporation, LLC, or LLP. There's a prohibition on any city contractors or their affiliates from making contributions to someone who might have approval of authority over that contract. And a prohibition on any person with a financial interest in a land use matter from contributing to a supervisor, mayor, city attorney, or a candidate for one of those positions. Again, I think the purpose here is, is fairly straightforward. It's designed to limit the undue influence that any person or organization can have over an election or an elected official. They're also in place to limit the potential conflicts of interest that can arise over the course of a campaign and that can then linger over that individual once they're in public office and must be acting in the public interest. Obviously, over the years, sophisticated campaign actors have found ways to avoid loopholes to try to get around these restrictions in an attempt to exert their influence. So I'm gonna wrap up the presentation with two examples of campaign finance law that are essentially targeted at preventing circumvention of these limits and enforcing these limits. So the first one common way that donors and committees can evade contribution restrictions is through IE committees. IE committees have fewer restrictions on the contributions they can accept, and they can then turn around and spend that money in support of candidates and ballot measures. So San Francisco has laws that regulate when an expenditure is no longer considered to be independent and should be treated under the law as a contribution to the candidate who benefits from that spending. In general, if an expenditure is made at the request, suggest, or direction of the candidate or in cooperation with the candidate, it should be considered a contribution. If it funds a communication that is only made after advice or a decision from the candidate on location or timing or content of the communication, it's considered a contribution. That is sort of the, the general coordination provision of the law. I think it's very intuitive when something goes from being independent to coordinated with a candidate. But the laws are also written with an eye toward the fact that it's pretty rare that you're gonna get that direct evidence of coordination between a candidate and say an independent, or independent expenditure committee spending to benefit them. So the law bakes in certain rebuttable presumptions of coordination. In case, so in cases where an expenditure funds a communication, if regulators can basically meet one of five tests, the law creates a presumption of coordination and the respondent in any case would have the burden shifted to them to show that there was no coordination. Um, I'm gonna briefly name these sort of five tests. It's a bit of a verbal mouthful, but just so that they're out there. Uh, and I do think they're all, again, fairly intuitive. The first is if the expenditure is made through or by an agent of the candidate, someone who is working on the candidate's behalf or their campaign's behalf. The second is if the communication funded is based on information about the campaign's needs or plans that were provided from the campaign or an agent of the campaign. Uh, third and fourth are basically if the spender or the spender's agent served the candidate's campaign in a, an important role, or if the spender retains the services of someone who provided the campaign or the candidate with professional services related to strategy. Uh, and then finally, the fifth is just if the communication replicates or reproduces a communication that the campaign put out. So if an IE committee puts out an identical communication, mail or door hanger or whatever, as that the campaign put out, that creates a presumption in the law. 
So again, it's, it's, that was a mouthful, but effectively the law has identified certain strong indicators of coordination and codified them into a legal presumption. And one, one thing I do wanna note about coordination is that coordination in and of itself is not against the law. It only changes how an expenditure is treated under the law. So once that expenditure is treated as a contribution, as a result of coordination, it's possible that the co contribution violates the law in ways that an expenditure wouldn't have, but the coordination itself is not inappropriate or illegal. For example, uh, I have a case here that was actually a, in Southern California. It was resolved via stipulation by the FPPC in which uh, it was a case of Pat Fury for mayor of Torrance. In that case, there was an individual who uh, ran a, had a campaign consulting firm and that individual through that firm provided professional services to the candidate committee through the creation of a mailer. That individual then worked for a PAC that supported the campaign, including the ass assisting with the creation of literature, billboards, yard signs, mailers. So essentially, in that case, the one individual's involvement with both the campaign and the PAC created the legal presumption of coordination, which again was not illegal by itself, but it turned the PAC's spending into contributions, which then violated the law. Moving to, this is the, the, the final example and slide I have, and this is about how sort of deep-pocketed donors can evade contribution limits and other restrictions by financing and persuading others to contribute to specific candidates and their committees. Uh, and again, the ways that this activity allows you to avoid uh, campaign finance and contribution limits, you know, a company, could ha a company can't donate to a campaign, but they could pay someone and ask them to donate on their behalf. They could do it to multiple people to avoid the $500 campaign contribution limit, and they could finance thousands of dollars of donations. If they're a contractor with the city and can't give to a specific politician or give to a specific candidate, they could pay someone to give to them on their behalf. So it allows them to go around all of those restrictions I mentioned earlier. Again, San Francisco law prohibits this type of campaign finance laundering, essentially, by banning what it refers to as assumed name contributions. The law prevents any person from contributing to a candidate in their own name if they received money before or after for that purpose, either partial reimbursement or total reimbursement. Unlike with coordination laws, an assumed name contribution is prohibited. It is a violation of the law in and of itself, and it is, we consider it to be a fairly serious one, given that it is almost always a knowing attempt to subvert campaign finance laws. One tool that we can use to identify this type of activity is looking to see when a series of donations have been made by relatives or individuals who list the same employer. You have to list your employer when you make a contribution. Um, especially when those are all made around the same date or if they're made by individuals who don't have a history of making large contributions and are suddenly doing so. Take, for example, I have a case from the LA Ethics Commission, which uh, has done a lot of great work cracking down on these sort of assumed name contributions. The Hillcrest Road LLC case. Uh, in that case, they enforce a very similar, almost identical local law around assumed name contributions. Uh, and in that case, 10 employees of Hillcrest donated the maximum amount to a city council campaign just a few days after the owner of the company donated the maximum amount to that same candidate. Upon investigation, officials found that the company account subsequently was used to pay back the maximum donation amount, which is 700 in Los Angeles at the time, uh, to all 10 individuals. So, in so you have 10 counts of violating the assumed name contribution law, and you also have one count of a massive excess contribution above the $700 limit. 
uh, because all of those effectively were made by one person, the owner of the company. Uh, in that case, the maximum penalty was $71,000, and the LA, uh, LA Ethics Commission imposed a penalty of $71,000, which I think effectively conveyed the severity of that type of violation. Uh, I know that was a lot in a, in a compressed period of time, so thank you for your attention and uh, your audience. That concludes it. Uh, I do want to mention again, this is just a slice of our campaign finance laws, some priorities that we identified. And we do ask for and welcome your feedback, especially on our priorities moving forward. Anything that you've seen that you think we should pay a, a special attention to, we're happy to receive that feedback. That was very helpful. Thank you. Thanks. I do have a couple quick questions. Yeah. Um, I won't take all day, but campaign finance is fascinating. Um, great presentation. I would love to see something similar someday on lobbying, what triggers those requirements. And part of my thinking is, as I understand it, political activity that triggers everything you've talked about is based on candidate or ballot measure advocacy, but not legislative advocacy, or for that matter, if a company paid a bunch of folks to come and urge us to vote a certain way on a proposed ballot measure. The measure itself would, but not our vote on it. And I'm guessing those would be more lobbying issues. That's kind of my understanding. Yeah, yeah, it, they would be lobbying issues. I think there is definitely space and opportunity for a presentation, especially you know what you just described would probably fall under expenditure lobbying versus contact lobbying. And I think that's an important distinction that uh, could probably use more exploring. And I, we would definitely be open to coming and doing a similar presentation. Yeah, and is that premise generally correct that only candidate or measure advocacy would qualify as political activity under the local code? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's important to note that that includes elected officials who are currently in office, but who, of course, will eventually be or are running for re-election. They are also still considered covered by campaign finance laws, but everything you just described would fall under lobbying. Got it. Thank you. I have a couple of questions. Thank you for the great presentation. The first question I have is um, campaign laundering. Uh, how do you close the loophole, specifically on the contractors? Because we discuss this uh, um, quite often. What happens if a partner of the contractor writes in the check, even though the contractor is prohibited from making the campaign um, donation? Is there any um, uh, system built in that you can track, let's say, a uh, contracting firm. You have the address, you have the owner's personal information. Is there any way that uh, you can trigger, you know, a same address or similar, uh, same last name or, or, or whatever you have, just to catch that loophole? Because it seems like that's a pretty large loophole using family members to make political campaign donations when the person is not allowed to do so. Yeah, as far as I know, we don't have any sort of automated system set up to help trigger that. Um, but we do, I mean, all of our investigators regularly review campaign filings and we sort of have, a, through experience, a reservoir of like red flag indicators built up and you know, spotting a series of contributions made by people with the same last name, the same address. Again, I mentioned that listing the same company will spike those red flags. Uh, I think it's probably worth exploring whether or not we can set up systems that uh, 
save us some manual legwork and can create almost notifications, things like that. But at, at this time, no, it's mostly uh, manual research from staff. Is there any updated list of contractors and expediters somewhere around the city that we can build on, build upon? Um, do you, either of you know the answer to that? Registration, because don't they have to register or something? Oh yeah, so on our, so, um, on our website, we have information on permit consultants mm -hmm. um, available who are registered with us. Mm -hmm. In terms of contractors, are you thinking any city contract? I believe it should be on the controller's website. Um, that, um, but I don't know exactly which data set. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It'd be great to find out from them. Okay. The second question I have is regarding nonprofits. Um, unfortunately, given the current environment, I, I can see more nonprofit organizations having to use the the um, campaign route to to um, protect the interests of their constituents. So the first first questions I have is you mentioned the commission staff often hold information sessions for campaign um, consultants. Uh, it would be great if you could hold these sessions um, with the nonprofit community as well. Um, I think that's a great idea, yeah. And also, from the executive director's um, uh, report on the revenues section, um, I see little or no registration fees from lobbyists and campaign consultants. So I imagine it's because this is only the first quarter, they're gonna come in later on as we get closer to the campaign? Or how does that work? The annual um, re-registration deadline is typically at the beginning of the year. I campaign consultants, okay. I believe it's so it doesn't go in. Okay. In, in January 1st, if I'm not mistaken, and, fe and February 1st for lobbyists. That's when we typically see a lot more activity. Oh, good so, to know. Yeah. Thank you for the clarification. Uh, if there's no other questions from my colleagues, let's open up for public comments, please. Madam Chair, we have no callers in the queue. Okay, public comment is closed. Thank you very much, Mr. DeMonco. You're going to be oh. very busy in a couple of weeks, in a few weeks. You did just call a public comment closed. So a hand just raised. Okay. So. Would you like to move forward with the caller? Yes, please. Okay. Please stand by. Welcome, caller. Your three minutes begins now. Great. Uh, David Pilpile, I assume you can uh, hear me. Sorry, it took me a moment to raise my hand. You really need to pause just briefly there, but thank you to uh, Ronald for uh, recognizing me. So um, the presentation was uh, very helpful. I did not find it on the website, so if staff could post that and perhaps number the pages prior to posting, that would be fantastic. Um, I don't think I heard anything about slate mailer organizations, which are their own sort of weird and unique uh, type of entity. Uh, I'm not sure if staff wants to discuss them uh, right now, maybe another time. Um, I also wanted to call attention to the fact that some committees um, under the law file with the Department of Elections, their campaign finance statements, and others with the Ethics Commission. It has been uh, complicated and confusing 
sorry, it's been complicated and confusing historically. Um, reviewing the Political Reform Act uh, briefly, it looks like um, sections 84215 and 84217 discuss locations to file campaign uh, finance statements. I am of the strong view that amending those sections to provide that all uh, statements in San Francisco should be filed with the Ethics Commission and not with the Department of Elections would be great, but that would require a change in state law, and I would encourage uh, staff to look at that possibility, and maybe we could get uh, Senator uh, Weiner or one of our assembly members to uh, introduce that. I think that would simplify a lot of things for a lot of people, uh, et cetera. Uh, those are my thoughts on this item. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, and the slide presentation will be uploaded on our website by the end of today, so thank you. Um, also, it may be helpful for our next meeting or by November meeting to have a presentation on social media and slate mail um, buys. That would be very interesting for okay. us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let's go to agenda item number eight which is discussion and possible action on items for future meetings. Very quickly, just a plug to uh, Mr. D'Amico. If we at some point have a presentation on lobbyist disclosures, I'd be particularly interested in how they apply to city employees, like members of supervisor's offices or of commissions. Are they exempt from those prohibitions, or sorry, from those requirements? Um, just a plug, I don't expect a response, obviously. Okay, thank you. And I think it would be very helpful to have an uh, expert to, to address the difference between advocacy and lobbying, too. Uh, yeah. That would be very, very helpful. Okay. Um, public comment, please. Madam Chair, we have no callers in the queue. Let us go to agenda item number nine, additional opportunity for public comment. I guess none. Once again, Madam Chair, we have no callers in the okay. queue. Okay, agenda item number 10, which is adjournment. Thank you very much and have a very happy weekend. Oh, gavel punch.